Welcome to the American Institute of Stress's official podcast, Finding Contentment. The goal of this podcast is to highlight new information about stress and stress management techniques. While we understand that stress is a very personalized issue and different for everyone, we hope to help you find your own way to contentment. Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Finding Contentment. This is your host and executive director for the American Institute of Stress. This is Will Heckman. I want to thank you all again for joining us. If this is your very first time joining us in our podcast, you should know this podcast focuses on stress and stress-related issues. And also, I want to remind everybody to follow us at stress.org. And if you got a moment, send in a review, send in a comment. I love hearing from you guys. Listen, I need your guys' help. Our mission is to improve the mental and physical health of the community and the world by setting the standard of excellence in stress management and education, research, clinical care, home life, and the workplace. We educate and credential healthcare professionals. We offer products and educational tools for everyone. We also publish two magazines. One is called Contentment, which, by the way, came out this week. Uh, make sure you check that out at stress.org. And the other one is called Combat Stress. And Combat Stress focuses more towards vets and first responders. But I tell you what, if you look in it, you'll see something for you too. But we need your help to carry out our mission. We need your help with a donation. The Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. So your tax deductible gift allows us to continue helping you along with service members, first responders, civilians, help everyone navigate stressful situations and have a happier, more rewarding life. And every dollar is greatly appreciated. And by donating to the American Institute of Stress, annually you help support, strengthen, and sustain our legacy of science-based stress management and education. Speaking of which, if you haven't had the chance yet, make sure you check out our documentary, Mismatch, Your Brain Under Stress. It was released recently, and it's a revolutionary documentary series exploring stress in our society and also what we can do about it. Uh, It's produced by the American Institute of Stress. It's called Mismatch, Your Brain Under Stress. It's a six-part documentary. It's uh, made by Justin Smith, featuring some of the world's leading experts on stress. And their collective experience stretches from the very first experiments done on the mind-body connection to the very latest research into unraveling the unconscious mind. And as entertaining as it is informative, Mismatch teaches us about what stress is and and also how to master it. All you have to do is go to stress.org and find out how you can see it. And also, if you're involved with a college or a corporate and and you want to do your viewing through that, we have institutional packages, which include lesson plans and quizzes and assessments. All right. So today, our topic is one near and dear to my heart. (laughs) It's not one that can be completely discussed in one show, but it's important. And that is being a police officer today and the stress that they go on through. You know, being a police officer today exposes the people we count on to serve and protect us to enormous amounts of stress. And that was true back in the 80s when I was a part of the NYPD for a few years. But it, it seems even more so now. Be it an officer patrolling high crime neighborhoods in a big city, a small town cop responding to a bar fight, or a homicide detective arriving at the scene of multiple murders. 
the common factor in their job is stress. I mean, let's face it. They work in environments where bad things happen. In fact, it is their job to run towards those bad situations while others run away. And we know that stress plays a part in our lives of everyone. We've said that many times in this show. Some stress is not only unavoidable, it could also be good. For example, the physical stress of working out. It improves your cardiovascular system. Pressure that causes you to study harder for an exam can improve your score. That's fine. Police stress, however, refers to the negative pressure related to police work. You know, cops and other first responders, they're not superhuman. They're people like you and me. The research shows that they are adversely affected by their daily exposure to human indecency and pain and the suffering of other. That along with the constant dealing with a suspicious and sometimes hostile public, and also long periods, believe it or not, of boredom and the ever-present danger that a part of police work, it takes its toll on them and it can cause serious job stress. Dr. Hans Selye's classic, The Stress of Life, described the effect of long-term environmental threats he called stresses. Selye maintains that unrelieved effort to cope with stresses can lead to heart disease, high blood pressure, ulcers, digestive disorders, and headaches, all of which we know that cops suffer from. You know, stresses of police work mainly fall into four categories, and there are stresses inherent in police work, and you can imagine what they are, but also stresses arising internally from police department practices and policies, with the police officers having very little say in them. That almost any job can make you stress out. But there are external stresses also that stems from the criminal justice system and, of course, society at large and internal stresses confronting individual officers or people just like you and me. They have sleep issues, lack of support, home life, etc. And besides all that, stress can also come from the change from a day shift to a swing or rotating shift or a graveyard shift. This not only requires biological adjustments, but it also complicates police officers' lives. I remember being a rookie and putting being put on a rotating shift. It just played havoc with my mental state and with my health. And I was in my early 20s. There are also role conflicts between the job, you know, serving the public, enforcing the law, upholding ethical standards and also personal responsibilities as a spouse, a parent, a friend, they all act as stresses. Police stress also stems from a distorted and unfavorable news accounts of incidents involving police. It happens every day. You see it all the time. Although lately, thankfully, I've been seeing some more positive reporting about police. I know this topic cannot be covered in one conversation. But it is a very important conversation. That is why I asked our guest to join us today and give us some insight into what is happening right now with our police officer. Dr. Ron Rufo is uniquely qualified to tell us about that because Ron is a retired as a, an officer from Chicago Police Department with 22 years 
of service, where he was a member of Chicago Police Department's critical incident team. He received his doctorate degree in 2007 from Augusta University. And Ron has been a team leader for peer support for over 18 years. Uh, he's written many books. His third book, Police Suicide, is Police Culture Killing Our Officers. is a great read. You got to look at that. Ron's latest book is Breaking the Barriers, Changing the Way We Support the Physical and Mental Health of Police Officers. Dr. Rufo has been asked to be a keynote speaker for the Badge of Life, which is a great organization that helps fellow officers in need. And listen, what you need to do is go find his books. Like everything else on this planet, you can find his books on Amazon. We want to welcome uh, Ron to the show today. It's a pleasure to have you here. And, and, and I know that you're uniquely qualified to talk about this subject. Welcome, Ron. Thanks, Well, I appreciate you so much and, and everything you've done as well. Thank you. You know, I, the first question I wanted to talk to you about is because I remember how I got on the job. It was by accident, basically. A friend of mine just uh, put in an application for me. I don't even know how he did it. He just informed me the next day. By the way, I put you and all of a sudden, a year later, I found myself in uniform after the academy. How did you get started <laughs> involved in law enforcement? Well, I had my, my dad had a good friend. He, in fact, he was a postman at first, and he became a, a police officer. His name was Phil Onesto. I, I can picture him like it was yesterday. I was just a kid. And he impressed me with his demeanor. He was a big, strapping guy. And he always said, listen, if the job that uh, I recommend is, is, being a, is being a police officer is the best job ever. And I started with my dad in, in the family business, so I really didn't pursue my dream right away. When my father passed away, I decided to take the test for Las Vegas Police Department because that was the one that came up. I said, well, let me try Las Vegas and see what I can do. I didn't run. I didn't practice the run like I should have. I failed the run in Las Vegas, which was a blessing because when I came back to Chicago, I started in the health club with a friend of mine and we ran every day and I took the test. I scored well. There was 36,000 candidates to take the test. Wow. Now they're looking, they're, they're lucky to get 3,600 to take the exam, but 36,000 to take the exam. And they only took the top 2,000, which I'm fortunate I was in that group. But with the Chicago Police Department, they don't do anything. Out, it, it, you're done by tomorrow. I didn't come on until four years later. In fact, I even gave up will that I would be a, a police officer police officer. And with that, I started in, I, after all the testing, July 15th of 1994, I was proud to say I became a Chicago police officer. Started awesome. the academy. That's awesome. I, I remember that test too. NYPD, you had the written test and the uh, physical test and uh, I took it. I was very young. I was, I would think I was 23 or 24 and and I remember thinking and looking around me and had guys who were like six, two and Marines. And I'm thinking, okay, I got a problem here. And right. I just laid out. I literally did the obstacle course with only, only as a young 20 year old can do it with no regard to my safety. <laughs> well, I was 40 in the Academy, but I probably oh. was in the best shape I was ever in. I, I could lift weights. I was, oh, yeah. I was a 34 waist. It, it was great. I loved it. 
it was probably the best time of my life in the academy. And I, I still have, I'm still friends with a lot of my former officers that, that I, or that were in the academy with me. So it's that kind of job. You make friends for life, you know? Right. Right. You know, I wanted to also, to, I, let's, I wanted to talk to you about this subject because it's really important. I realize we're all different, but you've been dealing with this for quite a while. You're, it was part of your job. We've talked about workplace stress on this show, and certainly um, the American Institute of Stress has pages uh, that focus just on that. But how does stress affect police officers specifically? I'm glad you, you mentioned that because, you, again, you stated a few things about administration, and I'll start out with that. The administration is changing every day, almost or almost or, or constantly put it that way. So today I might have a great boss. I may have a wonderful watch commander and taking care of everything, keeping, keeping me on the same beat and, and taking care of me all, overall. And then tomorrow he may get, he may retire. He may be, get transferred to a different unit. You never know. Then you might have the boss from hell <laughs> and that, that does happen often. And, you just don't know what you're what you're dealing with. And then you have rules and regulations that you have to follow. I know you had them in New York as well, that there could be anything that you do maybe against the rules and regulations where you get disciplined. So you got the administrative part and then you've got the job itself. And that's a whole total different commodity than when we first came on. It was so it was fun to be on the, on the police department when I was on. In fact, I, I love being the, uh, the police. I would have worked an, an extra shift with no pay. I mean, just do it just because I loved it so much. And usually we're seeing the first five years officers are on, they have that kind of attitude, but then there's a transition, usually five to 10 years, then they, it, they start the gradual change and they become a little bit more cynical. So the job itself, you got the fear of the unknown, being hurt or killed on the job. And that's, that's, that's really big. We just had an officer that was killed in Chicago, mm -hmm. a young lady, 29 years old shot. In fact, she shot on the, on the traffic stop and got shot between the eyes, a young lady and really a good person. Uh, you have critical incidents that, that we handle a bad accident, a homicide, uh, suicide death. So you, you have different incidents that you're handling. And then after a while, there's no one there to, to say, hey, I need some help because you don't want to be the weak, the weak link in the scenario. Where, and that camaraderie is, is a, I think it's a little bit exaggerated. You don't talk about another officer, but sometimes you, you hear that rumor mill in the, in the station and it could, it could be devastating to an officer about, Hey, Ron Rufo just went to go see a psychiatrist. Uh, I, I don't think I want him on my team. I I'm worried about if, would he be a good backup for me? So we always have that. So, and then you've got lawsuits, you've got suspensions, you've got court court is big. I mean, it, it, especially if you're on midnight, you know what? I really admire judges when they say, is there any, midnight officers here in court today. I really admire them because they, they said, let's handle them first. The other people can wait. So this way they can get home and get some rest. And I know we're going to talk about rest in a, in a, a few minutes. And then you got the family. Yeah. The midnight shift 
not the midnight shift. I'm sorry. I, I, I consider third watch in which I was on most of the time was third watch was 4 p.m. to midnight. That's the divorce shift in my, in my opinion, because you're always you're constantly working when everybody else is having fun. You're missing weddings. You're missing parties, confirmations, communions, bar mitzvahs, whatever. You're missing out on something and you're not with your family. And then with when you're with your family, do you tell them what happened to you that day? You know, because I tell you what, I got ahead. I had a real bad experience when I first came on. I had a young girl, four years old, shot in the eye. Could I tell my wife about that? And it was hard. I did. I did tell her. And she was a son. She said, Ron, I think you need to talk to somebody about this because it's been affecting you so much. Right. And then I also I remember this. Well, just to, it came to mind that I had a homeroom instructor that when we first started the academy, he said, how many people are married? I want you to stand up. So probably about we had about a class of 40 and about 30 of 30 of us stood up and he said, 80% of you will be divorced by the time your career ends. And I said to myself, I said, you know, this is, that's a high number. There's so, is there that much stress? Am I going into that, a profession with that much stress where I'm going to get divorced? 80% 80 of us are going to be divorced. That really bothered me. And I, I wanted to find out why. And I was fortunate enough to be to join peer support and then eventually become a, a peer support team leader. And I did handle a lot of jobs that way. And that helped me pursue my dream of writing and writing a book. In fact, the book, you're getting this in a few days. And I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Oh God, it's, it's, it's great. But this has been my book on police wellness. It's called Breaking the Barriers has really opened up a lot of avenues to talk about stress and about what to do about it, not just naming all the stressors that we have, because everybody, a lot of people do that, you know, about PTSD and everything else, but what we need to do about it to relieve some of that stress. And I have to say that you hit a lot of nails right on the head of what is affecting police officers specifically. Uh, And I heard that statistic too. Eight out of 10 cops are going to be divorced. And you want to know what? It still holds true today, people. That's a big number. And that's why you see a lot of cops married to nurses. And people say because they have the same hours or, and, or they, they can arrange it so they have the same hours. But all of the things you said are, are absolutely true. All of those things affect police officers and first other first responders as well. And if we are just right. talking about police right. officers, don't forget what we, we mean for all first responders. All first they responders. all have we they all have a lot of the same issues. And one of the ones you talked about. And I bring it up because it's been an an issue that comes up top two, top three, every conversation that I have with people about stress, whether it be with a neuroscientist or a teacher. It doesn't matter. It comes up as number one, two or three. And that's about sleep issues and sleep problems. Now, sleep issues and sleep problems that affect officers are double and triple fold. One of them being, as you brought up, the rotating shift. I worked the rotating shift. I worked the four, four to 12. We called it four P's. And it was horrible. It was horrible. It's just, it's just you don't feel good. And you're expected to go out there to serve and protect. And you've had three hours sleep. 
People right. don't realize that. And, and people, you know, they don't really care about that. And rightly so. The average person is not, it's not their, the citizen is not their job to worry about how much sleep the police officer have. That's the police department's issue. Right. And they should be addressing that. I finally got on to tactical patrol, which was uh, seven at night to four in the morning. At least it was steady. Yeah. And that was better. But t- talk to us a little bit about the whole issue with cops and first responders and this whole problem of sleep. I'm glad you asked. Well, I just did Joliet Police Department not long ago, and they're on a 12 hour shift. So a 12 hour. So you, you figure six in the morning to six at night. By time they get to work, it's got to be at least right, get ready. It's got to be an hour, hour and a half to get ready. And then by the time they get home and relax and settle down, that's another hour and a half. That's So you're talking about 17 hours of the day, even 18, that they're awake. Now they only have six hours to relax and rest. Normal sleep, anybody, is eight hours. And to be a normal good sleep and a, a good sleep, I mean a, a solid eight hours. How many coppers get up in the middle of the night? Uh, maybe to go to the bathroom or because they of something that they they had. So they not may not get a full eight hours of sleep, even a six hours of sleep. I did Mount Prospect Police last week, and I asked every one of them, because I have a sleep issue in, in my PowerPoint, a sleep presentation, and I asked each one of them, how many hours did you get? Average was about five hours. And I asked each one of them that had about that, that had that. How do you feel? And they all said, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm very tired. I'm sleepy. I'm sleepy driving. I'm sleepy when I'm stopped. I, I, I have a tendency sometimes to doze. And the society is pretty good at taking a picture when we're ready to sleep. So that's not a good thing. So, but in general, police officers do not sleep very well, especially you know, officers on midnights. Midnights, I really feel sorry for. They're fighting we're not nocturnal animals at all. We need to sleep at night and they're fighting what's natural. The problem is I remember being on midnights. I was a total different person. I said, this is not me. I can't handle the, the, the person that I am. I was short. I was constantly fatigued. I had poor sleep habits. I, I, I dozed for an hour. I got up for a couple hours. It's, it's, it was not normal. And then you have more citizen complaints when you're on midnights as well, because you're crabby, because it's a lack of, you know, poor decision making, a lack of good judgment. You might get hurt or killed easier because you're not focused on that person maybe coming up to the squad car or somebody that you may be dealing with in a, maybe in a bar fight or in a domestic. So there's a lot of chances of getting hurt. I have a if I, if you want to say something, go ahead. But I have, well, I, you know, you mentioned that uh, department went to 12 hours. I, I want our listeners to realize something. Okay. Uh, I was an educator for many years. If I put in 12 hours as an educator, I could skate. Let's face it. I can, I can phone in a lesson plan. Nothing, nothing was going to happen. If you're a police officer, and you're walking a beat or driving a sector or anything like that, you are on. You are hyper-focused. You are on. You cannot phone that in. You cannot skate. So that in itself is exhausting. If you're exhausted to begin with, you might make more mistakes. 
So the, the issue of sleep for first responders becomes all that much more important. Lack of sleep takes a toll on, on us mentally and physically. And then you have other issues that I, I know you, when you spoke about that before, you got high blood pressure. You have a more likely to be depressed. You get the, the idea of stroke, heart attack. It's all there. So poor sleep has an officer on edge all the time. Creates, again, the decisions are poor. Uh, more Again, more complaints. I had a doctor that uh, worked in sleep deprivation. Doctor, he's in my book, Dr. Steve, uh, Stephen James. He said 24 hours a day, 16 of those hours were awake, eight hours were asleep. So imagine a brick you put in a bag for every hour you're awake. So there's 16 bricks in your bag after 16 hours of being awake. Now you go to sleep for every hour of sleep, you take two bricks away. So when you wake up in the morning, you're fresh. You have no negative, negative balance there. But just say you only get six hours of sleep. Again, that you're, you're already starting the day negatively. So that does have an effect on you. He mentioned a few things that it's better to be in a routine when you go to go to sleep. Try to sleep at the same time. Try not to, to have uh, any contact with your phone, computer, tablet, uh, internet, about an hour before you go to bed. So this way you start to learn how to relax. And having a cool room mm-hmm. in a dark room. If you're on midnights, if you come home at 8 in the morning, it's light outside. He, again, he recommended having dark shades or something that you could prevent the light from coming in and then shutting off your phone, not getting constantly interrupted on a, on a sleep. And we've, and we've mentioned all, we mentioned all those things at, at stress.org. In fact, there, we have uh, articles and pages about sleep and sleep deprivation. So if people want to see that they can there too, but we, we have to remember folks that um, we're not talking about somebody who uh, is, doesn't have to be hyper alert all the time. They, they have, first responders absolutely do. Ron, I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about something else and, and I thought it was very interesting. And that is police officers with a military background. And you said they have additional stresses. They may face additional stresses because of that background. What do you mean by that? Well, I got to tell you, it's almost like having a double whammy. Okay. Being in the military and becoming a police officer, again, you went from a stressful situation to another stressful situation. The first thing when you're in the military, you're fighting overseas. Uh, I'll just say Afghanistan, that that some of our soldiers were there now have come back. They're experiencing critical incidents. They're experiencing death, being away from home, depression. There's a lot of things that they're dealing with. And now they're coming back. Just say, I'll say they came back to Chicago, a Chicago police officer. Now we have a mayor that doesn't like the police. We have a state's attorney that's putting criminals back on the, on the job. Now you're, you have a lot of critical incidents, maybe very bad accidents you're handling. Society that doesn't like the police or doesn't respect the police. And we're on our own soil. We're on in, in your own neighborhood. Now that that's almost like a double whammy. You went from critical incidents to another critical incidents, another, another job that takes a toll on you. So that's, I have found out that more officers committing suicide have been in the military 
prior to becoming a police officer. Hmm. And that's a, that's an issue we need to address. We need to say, hey, it, the elephant's in the room. We need to talk yeah. about it. This is something that needs to be done. We need to address the situation. And my my theory is, you know, when we shoot every year with our weapons to qualify, we need to have a day to a week, if we can, of having an officer seek help, a mental a, a mental health train not training, but a mental training and a mental health update so they can go talk to a counselor mandatory. So it's not like the stigma. We take the stigma away right. and we need to do this from the, the chief, all the, the supervisors, all the way down to the rank and file. Everybody needs to do this this way. It, I, to me, it would help because I don't remember if, when you were in the Academy, did you have any wellness training? No, at all? I mean, besides first aid and say, yeah, yeah, first uh, aid walk and off, yeah and, uh, no, no, no. And, and in fact, um, like you said, there was back in those days, probably more of a stigma to it. I'm hoping that now that stigma is lessened quite a bit because um, it's been quite a while. I think employee assistant programs are in place and things like that. So I'm hoping like guys like you who are there for, for officers to come and just speak to and Hey, you know, some of it is mandatory. You and I both after know a shooting after, after you shooting get a, it is right, you got you got to sit down, but even that is like it's not it, it's not amicable. <laughs> you know right, the cop, right. the, you know I'm fine, don't worry about. It. You know, no, you're not. You're not supposed to be fine. But I like your idea of the evaluation of a mental evaluation being mandatory every year, um, so that would take the voluntary out of it, and you would have to do it. The problem with that as you and I both know, is going to be the union. They're not the going to union, like it. Right. I know. Just and the like administration the, may not right. like it because now they got to get take these officers off the street for a, a day or two. Course, and money. the union fights you sometimes almost on anything. Right. But they're, if they're there, not to just look for the financial part of an officer getting uh, proper benefits and everything, but the wellness of the officer. I, I spoke with our union president, John Cantazera, on the subject. And he said, Ronnie, I think you have something here, but it's persuading everybody. Not everybody's going to want to go. You always got the guy that really needs to go and, oh, I'm okay. To me, he's the first one that really needs to see, to to get some help from a counselor, a psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever. But a lot of coppers have that hard I don't need it. I am okay. And I can save the world. Right. We're human and we can't do it. Right. And, and, you know, to go back to our original question, I think when guys come from the military, they may have that support more often because the military tends to recognize the fact that you're going to war. You're probably going to have some mental issues. You're supposed to. It's not a normal thing. All right. The, uh, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is, is something I've, I've experienced and you have without even knowing that you have no, I, I promise that you have. And that is my frustration when I was making it arrest. <laughs> and you think you have a good arrest. You're serving the public. You lock up the bad guy. You, you sit in front of an ADA and all of a sudden it's being knocked down or dismissed. 
Can you tell us uh, or, and uh, the listeners about the stress that we sometimes don't talk about? Like you mentioned a little bit about the administration and the lack of support, the courts and so on. This is a part of the job that people don't think about. People see a cop being authoritative, doing their job on the street, but they don't think about how frustrating it is and how stressful it is to put in a whole lot of work into something that you're passionate about. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, sometimes they're the legitimate reasons. I, I won't say they're not, but you lose that collar. You lose that arrest because of that lack of support. That happens more often than not. I personally, when we, arrested somebody there's we have box one and box two box one is mandatory to go to court i my partner loved court i personally did not like it but when i did have to go i what you're, you're working your your butt off to make an arrest to get to get a collar i know like at new york they always say collar to get a collar sure. and what happens is you go to court you do all this hard work. You're risking your life. You're you're running after the guy. You're tackling him. Whatever you need to do, the, the tactical part of it. And then when you get to court, they go from – I can tell you a, an example that happened with us. We had a, a burglary. So from the burglary, we, we arrested him. I crawled through a hole. I couldn't believe I, called through, I crawled through. So that's just one thing. When we got the guy, when we went to court, they knocked it down – a criminal trespass to property. So it went from, I believe it was a, a, a felony, if I'm not mistaken, and down to a misdemeanor. And it was just like a slap on the wrist and don't do it anymore. Right. So court is another, uh, it's a whole new topic that I know. I, it, it's, it's not beneficial to police officers because the hard work that they do really do not get recognized, especially when they plea down. And we have a state's attorney here that is not very good, and she lets almost everyone go. On administration, again, we, I spoke about that a little earlier, where it's changing constantly. Again, you always have a different personality that you may have to, you know, how will this, how will this watch commander or how will this lieutenant handle the, the the arrest that I just made. We always had one guy. I remember that it was in the, uh, I was in the ninth district and his name was, I'm, he's a lieutenant. I'm not going to name his name. I don't know if he's still alive or not, but when we, he would kick back your, no, th at that time is when we used to write the reports out. And I'm sure now yes, it's all on computers. <laughs> now it's all on computers. It's totally different, but he, he was known to kick back every report. He found something wrong anyone give him a report where he accepted it he, he had to change something so you 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 already knew that you're going to get you're going to get kicked back so again you have different personalities Good. i remember for in the book i i interviewed one officer and he said you know what i had a lieutenant that was divorced three times he was an alcoholic and here he's in charge of 30 or 40 people he's not a leader he can't control his own life how could he help us or can or, or be a leader to us that's so a good point that's what, that's what you're dealing with sometimes you right. something that you have no control over but you've got to follow and to put this in perspective to our listeners you know if you're doing a job or if you're working in corporate america and your boss sucks your boss sucks and makes your day crappy you know we've all been there i've been there not now my boss is great <laughs> 
<laughs> but in past jobs, the difference is when you're a first responder and your boss is lacking, um, your safety is in jeopardy. You can make bad decisions and, and deployment and things like that. So I, it's just I, you sh- we need to have that perspective. So when we say there's a specific kind of stress that police and first responders face, that's what we mean. And, and, and the guys, I got to tell you, I've had some great bosses when I was a cop, too. Learned a lot from them, taught me stuff, real good people. It's, it's not always bad. Um, sometimes it's just the procedure itself. One of the problems is, is police officers have very little say in policy and procedure, which is frustrating itself. Ron, I want to ask you about something else, because it was a different time when I was a cop. It was a long time ago. And you've spoken to this and addressed this in your books and I'm sure in your presentations that, that today's officers work in a much different culture than I did back in the day. And that change, that culture that police officers work in now, the culture itself has caused an enormous amount of stress for them. I, I agree 100 percent. And especially what you said just previously, I, with some of the old timers, they would help you. They say, hey, kid, do it this way, or kid, this is what I, this is what you did wrong, or let me show you how to do this better. Yeah. The, the culture was, there was a lot more respect. To me, there was a lot more camaraderie when I first came out on the job. The old timers would take care of you, sit down with you, talk with you. Today, I don't think anybody wants to get involved with the younger kids out there. Everybody mm-hmm. has their own, their own course, their own, their own dynamics. So uh, the culture in, in law enforcement has changed considerably from before. Officers are more accountable now than they were before. Oof. There's, They're wearing cameras. They're being filmed. There's always that accountability factor that they're dealing with every day. So the stress of that alone of did I do the right thing or always being questioned if, you know, did I take the right action with this citizen should i have done could i have done better and i think sometimes you need a learning a learning procedure with that not to be admonished with it but to make it a learning procedure but again as you know most often most police departments i know with chicago they're pretty easy in giving you a, a day or two or maybe a verbal warning and then the day suspension so you got the cameras you got the cell phone videos uh they need to be aware of less citizen support than we ever had. Citizens really respected us when we were on the job. I remember I was a Michigan Avenue foot officer and people loved us. They took a picture with us. Take, can we take a picture with a Chicago police officer? I mean, it was, it was wonderful. It was a, it was a nice place to be. I wasn't in a district that they have no respect for the police and their shootings every day. I was on Michigan Avenue, which was pretty nice. My wife loved it that I went to work there and not in a different district. So do you think there's less camaraderie now? You know, I, I think that it's, it's different. When I, I remember when I got on the job, um, my class that graduated from the, the academy it was different because the first six months, the crime rate in New York City went down 15%. So the mayor was a little uh, 
perturbed about that. Why do we need these bunch of kids? So some of the veteran officers didn't particularly like that. But after a while, we all got along. One of the problems was that there were way too many people watching, as you said. Even then, no cell phones, no cameras. But we had three, four bosses who were out every day watching. You had your sergeant. You had shoe flies, which is FIU, which is field investigation units who used to patrol. And, of course, you had IED, Internal Affairs Division, if if something happened. So you always felt like you were being watched. Today's culture is not only as your and, and you know that's almost kind of normal. Your your boss is watching what you're doing. Today's culture, everyone is watching. Everyone is a, a TV studio. Everyone has a camera, and they can from every angle, and not every angle tells the whole story. story. And I think that's oh. what's happened a lot. How One true. thing I did want to ask you about, the cops are wearing body cams now. I'm very much on the fence. We're not, without going into it for uh, uh, any length, are you for or against the body cams for officers? I am for the body cameras, and the reason why is they a citizen may film what's happening, but sometimes the body cameras will give a different perspective of what really happened. And we just had a young man, I think he was 13 years old. He had a gun. The officer told him to put it down. He put it behind his back. The officer didn't know if he was coming up with it. He shot him. He killed the young man. But the body cam showed a different perspective and a, a good perspective of a good shoot. Right. Where somebody was taking a picture on the other side and it, it didn't show you couldn't see the gun. I agree so, with that. So I, you know, I'm on, I'm on the fence with it when it first started, but I say, I think that body cam is going to show the public that 99% of the time, the cop is doing a good job. I think so. And, but again, and it, it could it. hurt the cop in a way too, but again, if, yeah. if that happens, maybe make it a learning, not a, you know, right. discipline. Okay. As well. The, but the, I, can I just add one thing? Sure. When please. police officers, I remember the old timers, they would go to the bar to talk. That was their that was their mental health speaking, going to the bar and getting drunk and coming to work drunk. In New York, and we used to call it choir practice. <laughs> choir practice, right? Yeah. But some of these guys would come right from the bar, right to right to the roll call. Okay. That again, that was was that right? No, it wasn't, but it was that it was a ruination of a lot of marriages as well, because these coppers could not go back home and talk about it. They'd go to the bar with the bartender and the rest of the guys, it was like misery loves company. They got the choir, just like you said, choir, they were the choir with everybody else that was on the watch. And if you didn't drink, you were like kind of the outcast. Yeah. So I just, you know, it was was back in the, in the day it was culture in New York. It was the choir boys and choir practice. We call it where you know, right. meet off after work. And, and uh, I was never a big drinker. I had a couple of beers and I'd go home and go to sleep because right. I was tired. All right. The last thing, cause we're running out of time. I wanted to talk to you about, and it's an, it's an important part of the job. And you, and you talked about it a little bit before, and it's an upsetting part of our conversation today, but it needs to be talked about. And that is police suicides. It has always been around folks. If you're listening, I'm telling you, even back in the eighties, we talked about it. Not much 
because nobody wanted to talk about it. But you've dealt directly with it. And I wanted to ask you about it. Do you think the rate of police suicide is climbing? And if it is, why? I believe it is climbing. I believe administration wants to kind of keep it under the rug. I remember as a team support, as a team leader, I went on probably six or seven suicides. They said, if you ask any cop, ask any supervisor, how many suicides do you think we had this year? I said, I don't, I don't hear any, maybe one, maybe two. Yeah. We average about six or seven every year. In fact, I have a, I have a friend of mine that we disagree on this, uh, the amount, but I, I'm, I know I'm correct. At least six or seven every year that goes really unheard of. We have officers that I know previously when I first came on, you had a lot of officers that had accidental deaths, uh, a good swimmer drowning, uh, a one car accident, a gun cleaning accident. So what happens is the family is not, doesn't have that stigma. Right. Of their of their loved one killing themselves, and then you, they'll still get the benefits from the city uh, administration today. I, I said, oh, I'm sorry. Administration today do not want to admit that there's a problem. It's a liability issue to them. When I came on, we all again we had tactical training. We did not have one class of emotional wellness. Who's taking care of us when we leave that station? That's why when I wrote the book, the second. The second heading of my book, it's, it's again, police suicide, is police culture killing our officers. It's our own culture, the cynicism that we have in our, our culture, the, the alcoholism, the depression that officers experience, not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, maybe financial issues, maybe marital issues. They have that gun right on their side. It's so easy to use, and that's what we're losing a lot of officers that way. Even officers that have gone 20, 30 years on the job, in retirement, they, they lost their identity. They lost the importance of their life, and they, they take their life. We just had two officers probably about two months ago. One was retiring that day and took his life hmm. in the district in the bathroom. He was re- he was a midnight officer retiring that day. The, the watch commander says, go home. I'll, I'll, I'll send you home with the car. We'll come back and pick you up at 8 o'clock to turn in your shield and your star and give you a retirement star as, the, as that's the procedure that happens. And he, no, he said, no, I'll just stay here. He went into the bathroom and, and took the gun and, and, and ate his gun. On the day he was retiring, isn't that? And then the next, about three days later, we have another officer, probably about 35, 40 years old, couple kids on the job. I mean, a couple kids, three or four kids in school, and he takes his life. He was a tech officer. So it happened in the same week. And now the city wants to do something. They want to bring somebody in to at the academy with that. So the stigma of getting help, it has to, it has to, it has to be done. We we got to get rid of it. We need to to do something. And suicide it just has a ripple effect on everyone. It affects everyone: the family, the, the regular family, and then the police family, the officer taking the report, the EMT that's handling the job, the dispatcher that sent out the job. It just all the way down the line. And then the people that have worked with them. I spoke with one young man that he said, "You know what? I talked to my partner about everything. I knew everything about him. We were together eight or nine years." I knew everything about him. He knew everything about me. 
I never saw it coming. And that's usually what happens when partners, uh, when somebody's partner commits suicide, they can't believe it. And nobody can. It's like I, they didn't see it coming. Well, it's certainly something that needs to be addressed proactively and not reactively. Um, we don't want to wait to the statistics climb. Ron, I want to I want to thank you. We're running out of time here. This is a conversation that I said at the beginning we can't have in right. in one session. If you're listening to this, I, I want to have this conversation today mostly for you guys remember when you see a police officer out there or another first responder a fireman emt they are there to serve and protect us we owe them our support and our thanks and we thank every one of them for especially the ones who came from military who served their country and now are police officers serving their community how much more can they do for us? We, we owe them the thanks. And I want to thank Dr. Ron Rufo today for joining us. Ron, it's a pleasure, man. We'll be looking well, for your book. Thank you. You should be getting it very soon. And uh, I hope you enjoy it well. And thank, thank you. you for having me. It's an honor to be with you. It's our pleasure. Um, and everyone, if you look on, on, again, the place where we get most of our stuff on Amazon, it's where I get most of my stuff and just look up Dr. Ron Rufo. You will find all his books there. They're fascinating reads. And not only that, but they have some important, important subjects. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. This is going to do it for today. This has been your host, Will Heckman. Don't forget to please follow this podcast. Send in those reviews. Send in those comments. I love hearing from you guys. And as I said in the beginning of the show, remember your support helps to keep making these podcasts possible. And I want to remind everyone, just as stress is different for each of us, there is no one stress reduction or management strategy that is right for everyone. So that means you need to join us next time as we explore more stress management strategies and insights. And also, again, remember, visit us, stress.org to gather information, tools, and techniques to live a healthier, happier, and a longer life. And I hope all the information that you heard from today from me and from Dr. Ron Rufo will help you find contentment. Good day, everyone. Thanks, Will. Well.